Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're gearing up for Tuesday's elections with a show we're calling The Ballot Box. I think we're going to be victorious on November 4th. We're going to have a great party. And will you help re-elect me to the United States Senate so we Ms. can... Ms. Bowser, may we have a respectful debate where we don't talk over one another? No. Because I think that's the way in if which we're going to... If you continue to refer to me as uninformed, then we will... I will continue to respond to you. With Election Day fast approaching, the politicking is at a fever pitch across our region. But rather than zeroing in on specific races, today we are zooming out. Our reporters are working in teams of two and taking a wider look at politics in Washington, Virginia, and Maryland. The goal to find answers to some perennial questions. Like, what drives long-shot candidates to throw their hats and money and time into the ring? D.C. is always going to be better off with the two-party system. And in order to have a two-party system that really works, you have to offer people a real alternative. And in a political town like D.C., why do so many newcomers hold off on registering to vote? There are a lot of people who are like, I'm just not part of the D.C. political scene, and they withdraw from it completely. But we'll kick things off today in the place John Adams once described as so eccentric a colony, sometimes so hot, sometimes so cold, now so high, then so low, that I know not what to say about or expect from it. We're talking about Maryland. But here's the thing. Maryland may be hot and cold and high and low, but overall, when it comes to politics, it's pretty darn blue. Since the end of the Civil War, Maryland has had just six Republican governors and 24 Democratic ones. And while 2002 saw the state's congressional delegation evenly split between the two parties, now it's completely dominated by Democrats. With the exception, of course, of Congressman Andy Harris, the Republican who represents the 1st District. Yes, indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, Metro Connections resident Marylander, managing producer Tara Boyle. Hi, Tara. Hi, Rebecca. So I should tell everyone who's listening, uh, when we were starting to brainstorm this show, Tara here brought up this question. Right. Well, I've always wondered, what is it that makes Maryland so consistently blue? And, you know, is it always going to be blue or is there some some factor that could change that? Right. Like, could it ever become more red or purple? And so, enterprising journalists that we are, we decided to look into the matter. We visited some battleground parts of the state to ask Democrats and Republicans what they think the future holds. But there is no future without a past. And Tara, you looked into the history of how Maryland became so blue. I did. I went to the State House in Annapolis where I met up with someone who knows quite a bit about Maryland history. My name is John T. Willis. I'm a professor of government and public policy at the University of Baltimore and former Secretary of State of Maryland. Professor Willis and I were standing near this quite imposing statue on the front lawn of the State House. It was commissioned in, does that say 1836? Yeah, that, yeah, that says 1836, but the bronze, that bronze wasn't made until 1870. The statue is of Roger Brooke Taney, and if that name sounds familiar, Rebecca, it's because he's the Supreme Court Justice who issued the Dred Scott decision way back in 1857. And that, of course, was the decision that said African Americans could not be citizens of the United States. So why does he have a statue in front of the state house? Well, it's definitely not because of that decision, which really did stain his reputation, frankly. Part of the reason is the huge role he played in founding the Democratic Party in Maryland. He started it as part of the Jacksonian campaign in May of 1827, and we've been operating under the structure that was created by the Jackson Party, led by Roger Brooke Taney in 1827 to the current date. So in other words, the Democrats have been building their power base in Maryland for a really long time. Absolutely. Professor Willis says their dominance was pretty much a sealed deal by basically the time of the Civil War. The Republicans, which had not fully formed yet, were much weaker. So the Maryland Democratic Party took over 
in essence in 1867. And so that in that reformation after the war, the politics were set. And thus Maryland was and is blue. Well, mostly. Right. And as we went about answering this question of will Maryland always be dominated by Democrats, we visited some areas that aren't necessarily all red or all blue, but purple. Right. They're places that really stand out from the blue suburbs here in the D.C. region. And they're also different from the red enclaves um, that you see in western Maryland and on the eastern shore. We're talking about Frederick County and Anne Arundel County, where the two parties compete pretty fiercely for voter registration and success at the polls. And uh, when Tara and I went to Frederick and Anne Arundel, we split up. I hung out with Republicans. And I hung out with Democrats, like this guy. I'm Spencer Dove, and I'm the treasurer for the Anne Arundel County Young Democrats. Spencer and I sat outside at a sandwich shop where he described the purple nature of his county. We have conservative, moderate, liberal, and independent Democrats uh, that make up our party. The Republicans, I'd say, have more of a moderate to conservative streak. It's, it's a pragmatic identity, I think, as a whole. That's what distinguishes in my opinion, Anne Arundel County, from from other jurisdictions. That's why we have remained purple and we do have a lot of competitive seats. Spencer has lived in Anne Arundel County for most of his life, and he'll tell you that just 10 or 15 years ago, this particular part of the county was mostly farmland. And now it's a major part of the economic infrastructure of the entire state of Maryland, Um, and it complements Fort Meade, uh, our largest employer in the state, as well as BWI Airport, one of the major uh, transit and commerce hubs in the state. So we are in the fastest growing area of Anne Arundel County. And that, he says, will be good for Democrats. Why is that? Well, it actually goes back to something Professor Willis told me over at the State House about the connection in Maryland between Democrats and density. If you were to look at areas that have over 1,500 people per square mile, you're going to find that the election results tend to be more Democratic. The closer together we live, and you'll find this is true, the more our attitude about what the role of government is, is reflected in how we vote electorally. That actually segues quite nicely to what I heard from the guy who chairs the Republican State Central Committee of Anne Arundel County. There are more registered Democrats than Republicans. A lot of people don't know that. Nathan Volke has lived in Anne Arundel his whole life. He got into politics there when he was 19. But on the whole, most of those Democrats, even when they go into the booth, they end up voting for Republicans in, in areas around the county. Hence Anne Arundel's position as more of a battleground, with the potential to go more purple, especially when you compare it with surrounding jurisdictions like Baltimore and Prince George's counties. And does Nathan think it will stay that way? He hopes it will, but the western part of the county is seeing a lot of growth, particularly among people who commute somewhere else, uh, be it D.C. or Baltimore or nearby defense contractors through BRAC, uh, the base realignment and closure. So the question is, with this influx, uh, will the subsequent increase in density, and there's that word again, will this density mean more approval for the Democratic Party? Uh, And Nathan says so far, yes. But I think that over time, when we have the chance to show them what it's like for Republican ideas to be in place, that they may start coming around to voting for Republicans. But they're not right now, and that's a place we need to continue making inroads. Well, that's interesting. And how are they doing that? Well, it just so happens I asked another Republican in another purple part of the state that very question. Uh, His name is Jason Laird, and he's a member of the Frederick County Republican Central Committee. There's two different strategies. Some campaigns are really um, hitting the independents hard. And he says Frederick has a lot of independents and undecideds. And other folks, the strategy is to just go to the base and try to get them motivated to come out. Not everyone votes all the time, you know, so they try to get the people who are registered Republican to come out and vote. 
And, uh, you hear that? Let me guess. That is the sound of them trying to get registered Republicans to uh, come out and vote. Bingo! Hi, sir. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm Delegate Kelly Schultz. Nice to meet you. you. And we're out today reminding people of the election that's coming up on November 4th. Okay. I tagged along with State Delegate Kelly Schultz of House District 4 on an absurdly beautiful day, so barely anyone was home. But of the people we did meet, the majority said something more or less like this. I mean, I don't know. I'm not really big into voting. I mean, I registered to vote, but um, I'm not really big on voting. Are you a voter, too? Uh, no. <laughs> it's a big day for those of us in the state of Maryland. Do you plan on voting? You're not going to vote? I have to stop you here for a second, because as I was listening to this, I was thinking about what happened when I visited Frederick. Uh, yes, my name is Isabel, and I'm a volunteer with the Frederick County Democratic Party. I stopped by the Democratic Party headquarters on West Patrick Street earlier this week. And I was just wondering if she was going out to vote earlier this week. And that's where a volunteer named Isabel and a bunch of other folks were sitting in front of their laptops, making call after call to try to convince people to take advantage of early voting. And a lot of the time, no one picked up, or the right person wasn't home, or this happened. Oh, you don't know yet? Okay, well, if you do have a change of mind... Um, oh, that sounds a lot go. like my door knocking. Yeah, right? But think about this. In Frederick County's last primary, a little more than 54,000 Democrats registered to vote compared with nearly 61,000 Republicans. That's kind of a thin margin. Definitely it is. And so all this get out the vote effort is really key. We hope to make 40,000 calls in the next week. Wait, did she say 40,000 calls in one week? Amazingly, yes. But Myrna Whitworth was pretty optimistic about hitting that goal. She's the chair of the Frederick County Democratic State Central Committee, and she thinks the untold story here and and basically across Maryland and across the country, for that matter, is the undecided voter. And actually, all the people I met for this story think more and more younger voters are going to opt out of formally aligning with a specific party. And that will represent a really interesting challenge for both um, Democrats and Republicans in these battleground parts of the state. I actually heard a lot of that, too. Uh, Jason Laird, the guy I interviewed from the Frederick County Republican Central Committee, he told me some candidates in his party are trying to actually go more moderate so that they can appeal to unaffiliated voters. So does he think, then, that Frederick County is going to remain purple or turn more blue? Well, I asked him that question, and his response was pretty straightforward. The city and south is more Democrat, and the horseshoe around that area is more Republican. If that trend continues, then, yeah, it, it's probably going to go more purple and then blue eventually. Of course, he also said he doesn't have a crystal ball to give an exact answer. Uh, you probably make some good money if, you, if you're good at predicting that sort of thing. <laughs> but here at Metro Connection, we have something even better than a crystal ball. We have WAMU's Maryland reporter Matt Bush, who joins us now for one last perspective on this topic. Thanks, Matt. You're welcome. All right. So Matt, Tara and I have done a lot of trekking around Maryland over the past few weeks, but you cover the state every day. Do you have a sense that it's going to remain mainly blue for the foreseeable future, or might there be some surprises in store for us? We've had eight years, and, you know, when we look back in history about this, uh, you know, Martin O'Malley's going to cast a very long shadow on Maryland's history. And I think at the end of this time, it's just sort of like, okay, we're passing into a new era. And, you know, no one's really emerged as that sort of next sort of powerhouse candidate in Maryland. And 
I think maybe people are maybe used to seeing that the last three or four uh, elections. You know, you had O'Malley and Bob Ehrlich were very to their parties. Even you can argue that they're still running against each other in this election because it's two people who served in each of their administrations. They just you know, there isn't the next sort of generation after that of person who will inspire a lot of people to to vote or get interested in state politics. And it's not just a Maryland issue. I think that's an issue uh, across the country. But in Maryland, it is. I think there's just people are kind of waiting. Who's going to be the next? What's the next generation of leadership? And now we turn to you. What would you like to see from the next generation of local leaders? Email us at metro at wamu.org. And if you want to chime in on Maryland's relative red, purple, and blueness, we are all ears. Send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMUmetro. Time for a break, but when we get back... If you aren't registered to vote in the place where you're living, the disconnect is substantial. Why newcomers to D.C. aren't flocking to the polls. That and more in a minute here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where we are all about the ballot box. Our reporters paired up this week to dive deep into local political issues. Before the break, Metro Connection producer Tara Boyle and I explored the red, purple, and blueness of Maryland. And now Emily Berman and Lauren Ober take the mic to ask a seemingly straightforward question. Why do so many district residents hold off on becoming district voters? Hey, Emily. So I see you have a voting sticker there. Why, yes, I do have a voting sticker. I voted early, had the time. Why not? I did the same thing myself this morning. And would you like to vote in English or Spanish? English. So have you always been a D.C. voter? I have been a D.C. voter for a while, but it took me a while to make the switch, actually. I moved because of a relationship. So um, fortunately, it worked out. We're married now. We have a kid. A little native Washingtonian, eh? (laughs) Indeed. But back to the voter registration thing. When I first moved here, I was getting a lot of pressure from my mom to vote in Michigan. That's where I grew up. Anyway, I told her I was changing my registration. I'm in D.C. for good. And then that day I opened my mail and there was an envelope from her with an absentee ballot application. And there was a sticky note on it that said, fill out ASAP. Love, mom. And by then I'd already gone down and changed my registration anyway. So my story is a little different than yours. I've moved around a lot for jobs, and every place I've moved, I've always registered to vote immediately um, as soon as I've moved there. And I feel like, for me, that's a way that I can connect to the place that I live and sort of have that buy-in, say, okay, now I live here. So as soon as I moved to D.C., I registered to vote in the district, and I got a new driver's license. Sadly, I had to give up my previous driver's license, which had a much better picture. So your experience, my experience, both are 
technically fine ways to go about it. There's no legal requirement to become a D.C. voter within any length of time. But other states might strike you from the voter registry if you haven't paid taxes in a while. Still, you could live here in the district and not vote for years here, like maybe even your whole life. Thousands of people do. So we decided to talk to some of them about why. I headed to Mount Pleasant to meet Alexia Sikora, who at 23 has never missed an election. So a lot of times I'll just start doing a Google search from there, kind of, you know, find their their websites, kind of start looking at what what they're talking about. Sikor recently graduated from American University and lives with three of her friends from school. She cast the ballot in Yonkers in Westchester County, New York. Obviously for the local elections, Robert Astorino, he's the Westchester County executive, is running against Andrew Cuomo. And I don't think he really has a chance. Cuomo has a huge name. She spends a lot of time chatting with her dad about Westchester politics and says being able to have these conversations with peers is one of her favorite things about Washington. If you want to talk about politics with someone... For the most part, you're going to have an educated conversation. That's national politics, not so much local politics. I definitely don't know too much. I am a little bit familiar with uh, Mayor Gray and all of his scandals, just because in one of my crisis communications class, we kind of studied that. I clarified that it wasn't a whole class about D.C. political debacles and just one example among many. But the point is, that's all she says she knows about D.C., Same with her roommates. I know not much. Molly Tillman is from the eastern shore of Maryland and told me she has basically no idea how D.C. is governed. I'm completely ignorant of how that's structured. So it's sort of like I could maybe register in D.C., but I wouldn't even know what I would be really voting for. Tillman, like all of her roommates, has been here for more than five years, which she admits is kind of a long time. We should probably all know more since we are D.C. residents, but I don't know why. It just doesn't, it's something that we don't do. We went upstairs where it became clear these are women with serious hometown pride. Molly Tillman has a huge Maryland flag hanging over her bed. Emily Yox in the other room has an entire drawer dedicated to buffalo paraphernalia. I got my buffalo Christmas sweater coming in the mail. Oh, I got this great buffalo t-shirt. Look at this. I have so many. So the question is, why? Why don't they care about D.C.? Yak says the reason she votes in Buffalo is because she has no idea how long she'll be in the district. I kind of am am thinking about moving back to Buffalo, thinking of moving to a different city for grad school, thinking about staying in D.C. long term. There really isn't any definitive answer to where I will be in the next couple of years. We always have our crazy plans. Yeah. (laughs) So who knows? (laughs) But has anyone tried to get them involved? I mean, they've been here for five years. They say no one has suggested they vote here or tried to engage them in conversation about local issues None of that, which is weird, especially when you look at the fact that young adults are driving D.C.'s growth. According to the Urban Institute, 18 to 34-year-olds make up more than one-third of D.C.'s population, way more than the 23 percent nationally. So why aren't candidates homing in on this demographic? One thing you hear about this is that D.C. is a transient city, that no one stays here very long. 
I talked with James Jones at DC Vote about this, and he says that's pretty much a myth. There aren't nearly as many people here who are transitory as as the legend would suggest. People think that large numbers of people in DC are coming here for a couple of years, they're going to get their government experience, and they're going to leave. And the fact of the matter is, it's just not that much different than any other city. It sounds like these women are confident they'll get better jobs and be up and out of DC soon. But like a lot of people, they may end up staying for a while. People can be here for years and still not care about D.C. politics. I was talking about this with Patrick Madden, who covers D.C. politics day in and day out for WAMU. I have friends that work on Capitol Hill that just do not care about what's going on at the local level here. It's mind-blowing in a sense because these are issues that you care about on an international and national level. Why would you not care about what's going on in your own backyard? One thing holding us back, he says, is corruption. That is going to reinforce this apathy that folks may have toward getting involved in local politics if, A, they think the game is rigged, or B, they think it's corrupt. Patrick says in his experience, it's one of two things that get people deeply interested in the city, buying a house or having kids. But beyond those, I still wonder if there's an issue out there that would drive young people to vote here. Honestly, if you knew that, Emily, you'd be raking in the cash. But there are some people who are interested in D.C. politics right off the bat, like a guy I met recently named Andrew Huff. Voting has always been part of Andrew Huff's life. His parents were big into voting, and they used to take him with them when they went to cast their ballots. That's what stuck with him over the years. Growing up as a kid, I can always remember my parents kind of talking about politics and voting. The older I got, the more I realized how much I disagreed with my parents in that realm. Huff's parents were and still are staunch Republicans. And he, I take it, is not? No, definitely not. He's more like an independent with Democrat tendencies. But kind of the message that got to me through all that was the importance of participating in voting. So as soon as I turned 18, I registered to vote in Virginia and haven't missed an election since. Huff grew up in Front Royal, but he's lived in other states and he's always registered to vote as soon as he moved to a new place. Jan Leakley, a professor at American University's School of Public Affairs, calls people like Huff habitual voters. If you're a habitual voter, those are going to be the individuals. If they always voted in New Mexico, when they come here, they're going to always vote in D.C. Or their probability of registering and tending to that important detail will likely be higher. When Huff landed in D.C. 10 years ago, he registered to vote almost immediately. I registered at the same time that I was setting up my utilities, basically. It was kind of on my checklist. And I kind of felt like I was here for a little while, for the long haul, maybe even. Plus, he wanted to work in local politics, so he thought any candidate he worked for might want him to be able to vote in the district. But more than being professionally expedient to vote here in D.C., Huff says for him, voting where he lives is his community responsibility. If you aren't registered to vote in the place where you're living, the disconnect that's created is substantial. You know, if you live in a neighborhood and care about how many cops are on the street, if you care about your fire department, if you care about, you know, being able to call 911 and and have an ambulance show up in a reasonable amount of time, if you care about what streets and alleys are getting attention, what our transportation system looks like, then you should register to vote where you live, and in this case, in the district. But I'll go back to Alexia Sakura and her housemates in Mount Pleasant. They aren't necessarily concerned about which streets and alleys are getting attention or what the future of our transportation system is going to look like because they don't think they're going to be here to see that all pan out. 
And a lot of people like them think their vote doesn't matter here. But for them, Huff has a counter argument. Because the district functions in essence as a city and a state and a county, it's a very complex system and one that requires participation, I think, in a way that some other places might not. Huff makes a good case, but a lot of people don't see it that way. And so what if they don't? Well, many argue that voting where you live is like the bones of our democracy. Jeffrey Richardson is the director of Serve DC. It's part of the mayor's office. And he says that voting is the most basic way you participate in your community. We know that folks who vote early, vote often, who show up to vote are more likely to also be engaged in community decision making, not just sort of, you know, at the in the voting booth, but what happens after that, engaging with their elected officials, engaging with various community organizations that affect policy and programs. And so voting is a strong indicator often for civic engagement and community relationships and involvement. That's interesting because when I talked with James Jones at D.C. Vote, he made sort of a similar argument and said that here in D.C., it's even more important that people be engaged because we still don't have the same rights as Americans who live in other parts of the country. So I think having people who are new register here to vote is super, super important for showing the rest of the country how much we care about democracy and eventually getting our goal of being equal to all other Americans. Seems to me, Emily, you need to have him go visit with your mom in Michigan and tell her all the reasons why your vote actually matters here in D.C. I think that is a great idea. I will text him her phone number right now. I hope she responds. Those were reporters Emily Berman and Lauren Ober. Their story was informed by sources in WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN, a way for you to share your experiences and insights with our newsroom. Learn more about it at metroconnection.org slash PIN. We'll turn now from voters to candidates, specifically candidates whose odds of victory are, how shall we say, slim. We're talking about political outliers, generally candidates who run on a third-party ticket. WAMU's Jonathan Wilson and Martin Ostermule hit the campaign trail in Virginia and D.C. to find out what makes these candidates tick and how they affect our political discourse. And um, I know we're talking about political races here, but uh, Jonathan lives in Virginia and Martin lives in D.C. And these two have a little race going themselves. Uh, You'll see what I mean. Okay, Ostermule, I think first we should start by letting listeners know you live in the district. I live in northern Virginia. And I'm going to assume, in fact, I know that you think D.C. politics are pretty interesting. I would argue, actually, that Virginia has you beat. But I'm a gentleman. I'll let you start. Well, I appreciate it. And don't don't sell us short just yet. First off, I will admit this, though. D.C. is a one-party town. Democrats make up 75% of the electorate. In 2012, President Obama took 91% of the vote, which is basically more than anywhere else in the country. But despite the Democratic dominance, we do have some smaller parties fighting for seats, including, yes, Republicans. Here's Chris Hammond, who's running for D.C. Council Chair, explaining why he's in the race. I've always thought that uh, D.C. Would, is always going to be better off with the two-party system. And in order to have a two-party system that really works, you have to offer people a real alternative. So D.C. Republicans want to cut taxes, they want to cut spending, and they want to keep school reform efforts going. They also support same-sex marriage, unlike the National Party. And even though they're a pretty progressive variant of the national GOP, they still face some basic challenges in D.C. Here's Hammond. I don't know that any Republican candidate, you know, 
puts Republican on the literature. But you know, when when you when you don't have a Republican on your literature and you're talking to people, if people have a sense of get a sense of your ideas, and they find out your ideas first and your party label second, they're much more uh, open to um, to t- to uh, to your to voting for you. See, we've got a little political diversity in D.C., hidden as it may be. Very hidden, I would argue. But okay, things are certainly more competitive in North Virginia, where Republicans and Democrats, at least in some spots, are pretty evenly matched. But I'm nice. We'll start with Arlington, something that you will understand because it has one party dominance. We're talking about the Democrats in Arlington, of course. John Vistat became the first non-Democrat elected to the county board since 1999 last year. He's a Republican who ran as an independent. But let's talk to someone who is used to fighting the odds again and again and again. I'm running as an independent this year. I did not get the Green Party endorsement because I've run four times before in the last three years for county board and haven't won yet. So that is the voice of Audrey Clement. She is running as an independent, as you just heard. But she when I met her, she was wearing a green sweater with a green polo underneath. So she is a Green Party member. Her main issues are, of course, the environment and fiscal responsibility. Now, despite that lackluster record, again, she's lost four times, will probably lose again this year. She says it's actually easier to be a third-party candidate with a one-party dominant system because that dominant party doesn't fear you, and you can bring up whatever ideas you want to bring up, and the dominant party isn't worried about you stealing votes from them, so you actually have more of a voice. Is the situation similar for Greens in D.C.? It definitely is. And yes, we do have a Green Party in D.C. It's called the Statehood Green Party. It has a long history in the city. It had two members on the D.C. Council, but the last one left about 15 years ago. Since then, the party hasn't had a whole lot of success, but even if it's not winning, its members say that the point isn't necessarily to win, but rather to influence a political discussion and push Democrats a little further to the left. Just like Virginia, right? Right, exactly. So I spoke to Eugene Perrier. He's one of 15 candidates running for two open at-large seats on the D.C. Council, and this is what he had to say about running for council. I mean, I think it's very important that people see there are alternatives, there are different ways at looking at things, and if we don't have people who are willing to run against long odds, you're never going to bring these ideas from the, the margins to the center. So among those ideas are he wants more money for affordable housing, he wants a public bank for district residents, and he wants a $15 minimum wage. All right, so Northern Virginia and D.C. both have green parties. We've established that much. But I would, again, argue that Northern Virginia and Virginia as a whole is more interesting than the nation's capital, politically at least. We've got libertarians gaining momentum, and the man most responsible for that in Virginia is Robert Sarvis. He ran for governor last year. He's Harvard-educated. He's now running to unseat Mark Warner for U.S. Senate. That's a race where Warner is running against Ed Gillespie, the Republicans. Here's Robert Sarvis. We'll be celebrating on election night, regardless what happens, because we put in a lot of effort. We reach a lot of people, and we're happy every time a voter tells us that they're going to vote for us and that they believe in what we're doing. That's, uh, you know, uh, it, it makes us feel really good. All right, so that makes it sound like he knows they're going to lose. That's sort of true, but it's also not really fair. you got to look at the long game. This is what Sarvis tells me. He says the libertarians are building a party. He's done a nice job of recruiting candidates. He says that's part of his responsibility. The Libertarians have a full slate of candidates for all the federal races across Northern Virginia and across the state. They've got seven out of 11 districts covered. So they're really making a good showing, giving people a choice across the state. Now, one of their major goals is to get 10 percent in a statewide race. So if Robert Sarvis gets 10 percent of the vote in Virginia, 
then the libertarians become a major party. They get major party status, and that allows them easier ballot access in Virginia for the next election. David Valente is the chairman of the Libertarian Party of Northern Virginia. Now, a little bit ironic, he actually works for the Department of Veterans Affairs in D.C. So he's working for the federal government, but he believes in much, much smaller government. He talked to me about how much time and energy getting on the ballot takes right now for libertarians in Virginia. It's hard to find candidates because of the ballot access issues, you know, trying to get uh, for, for a federal candidate in the state of Virginia, a thousand signatures for a U.S. House and, and for a Senate candidate, you have to get 10,000 and you have to have 400 per, per House district. So it's even more rules than, say, for a guy running for governor. So this is one area where I think we're finding some similarities between D.C. and Northern Virginia. Okay. So in 2012, Bruce Majors, a libertarian, he ran for Congress in D.C. and he got enough votes to push his party from minor to major status That's in the what, district. That's what service is trying to do. Right, exactly. And so what that means in D.C. is that it gets a lot easier for them to get candidates on the ballot. And this is what they did this year around. He's running for mayor this time and he recruited a whole slate of libertarians to run for council seats. Now, the funny thing is, like Sarvis and like other minor party candidates in the district, he admits that it's not really about winning necessarily at this point. It's too early for that. It's about building up the party and also kind of influencing the debate as they go along. So here's Majors talking about what the goal is for this election. What we're aiming for is to get the minimum 7,500 votes for one candidate so we maintain permanent ballot status. And so I'm appealing to people who aren't even libertarians or aren't libertarians on every issue. Since we already pretty much know that one person is going to win, I think, and one, one or two other people are going to lose, that people should vote for the libertarians so that we maintain ballot status. Okay, that's all pretty fascinating, Ostrom. You'll admit the district is somewhat politically interesting. I applaud you for keeping up with me. But let's return to the question I think most people have when they look closely at third-party candidates. How do these people do it? They know they're going to lose. Why even get in the race? Why stay in the race when reality starts to creep in to the picture? Now, let's return to Audrey Clement. She's that independent running for school board in Virginia, formerly of the Green Party. She told me part of the reason she runs again and again and again and doesn't get discouraged is because she gets her name out there more and more, and that is important. When you are a third-party candidate running without uh, substantial financial backing, the only way that you can develop the name recognition to build a base of support is by running continuously or running often. See, I got the same out of Eugene Perrier, who's the statehood green running for one of the at-large D.C. council seats. He basically told me that win or not, the point is essentially to rebuild a party that has a long history, has had members on the council, but has been in the political wilderness for the last couple of years. Here he is. We're trying to renew the brand. You know, we ultimately recognize that we've been down for a while, but here we are coming back up and bringing that unique element of district politics that you might have been missing, bringing it back to the conversation. I also talk with libertarian Jeff Carson. He is running in the congressional district that Democrat Jim Moran is leaving behind. He, I thought, gave a really thoughtful answer about how he's going to feel on Election Day when the results actually start coming in. By the way, we met outside East Falls Church where Jeff Carson was handing out information to prospective voters. I, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, I'm a competitive guy, right? I, I, I am. I, I didn't get in this race to get 3%, to get 7%, to get 10%, to get 20%. I got in the race to win. Now, I know that's a, I, I knew it was a slim shot going in. There's no question about that. I'm not an idiot, right? But still, the point to, to run a race is to win the race, right? I mean, yes, there are some goals you can accomplish along the way. You can get the message out. You can bring people into these uh, to, to the party. You can, you can get the ideas out there and have them start resonating with folks. And I think we've done that. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, you run to win. So if I go out there and I get 10% or 15 or whatever it might be, it's still not a win. I'm not sure actually how I'll feel. We'll see, we'll see when we get there. I like the winning spirit in Northern Virginia. I do. <laughs> so on our side, I talked to Bruce Majors, who's the libertarian running for D.C. mayor. And he didn't tell me that he would be particularly disappointed if he did lose. In fact, he expects to lose. He says that the majority of the candidates running as libertarians assume that they're going to lose. But he enjoys being a political outlier. He said that he actually enjoys needling the institutions a little bit, needling the establishment, and kind of using his perch as a mayoral candidate to push the conversation along. So here he is. I mean, I guess we're a political outlier, but I I don't know that that's a bad thing. I mean, we actually want to raise certain issues and ways of looking at things so that we slowly shift sort of the Overton window of D.C. politics. So I don't, I mean, I think in a way we kind of want to be an outlier in the sense that we want to be on the edge. We want to actually be pushing the envelope. All right, so he likes being out on the edge, likes pushing the envelope. That's kind of like kind of like me, Martin, don't you think? Totally, outlier to the end. All right, well, it's been real. That was the ever-humble Jonathan Wilson and his esteemed colleague Martin Ostermule. We want to know, have you ever voted for a third-party candidate? What motivated you to check that box or punch that chad? Tell us about it. Our email address is metro at wamu.org or send a tweet to at WAMU Metro. After the break, a perennial political issue improving D.C.'s public schools. We have the shortest school day and the shortest school year. None of these are things that were particularly conducive to making for a good school system. That's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're diving into local politics with a show we're calling The Ballot Box. One of the issues that consistently shapes politics in D.C. is education and the question of how to improve public schools long considered among the worst in the nation. This election season, one of the biggest points of discussion among the mayoral candidates is whether to change school boundaries. I will not support a plan, and I do not think a plan is ready if it exacerbates educational inequality. Diversity is very important, but what is also important is making sure our schools are absolutely resourced. I'm not going to allow Brown versus Board of Education to go backwards on my watch. Those were D.C.'s top three mayoral candidates at a recent debate, Carol Schwartz, David Catania, and Muriel Bowser. Now, the reality about many D.C. schools is they've long been separated along race and class lines. Kavitha Cardoza and Jacob Fenston bring us this story on how they got that way and what it could mean for the future. We're outside Sousa Middle School in southeast D.C. It's a regular-looking 1950s-era red brick building. But this school was once an education battleground. In September 1950, 11 black students tried to enroll in what was then an all-white school. Back then, D.C. schools were segregated by law and were not equal. The students were turned away, but they took their case to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in 1954, the court ruled in their favor. The ruling in the case Bowling v. Sharp came the same day the court struck down segregation in the rest of the country in Brown v. Board of Education. But today, the school is still not integrated. Now, 99% of students here are African-American, 
there are no white students. So in some ways, things haven't changed so much in the 60 years since desegregation. In 2005, one local group issued a report looking at what exactly had changed in the years since 1954. I talked to Rod Boggs. He's executive director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, the group behind the report. Unfortunately, the conclusions were, and I think they're pretty well documented, is that if you had to really look at the education that the average child in the city was getting, particularly an African-American child, the education was considerably inferior to what was being offered during the era of segregation. Some of the very basics were missing, like safe school buildings. At one point, there were close to 6,000 fire code violations at schools. I talked with one school principal who's very familiar with buildings like that. Maria Tukeva is the longest-serving principal in DCPS, 34 years. She founded Columbia Heights Education Campus because of the inequities she saw in the education system. There were very low expectations for African-American and Latino students, and this was reflected in the number of students who were taking any kind of college preparatory courses, Um, the number of students who were in higher-level math courses. Her first school recruits were poor minority students who were pushed out or were on the verge of dropping out of other DCPS high schools. She says school buildings all over the city were crumbling, including hers. Well, we never had a building when we first started. We were given little spaces in other buildings, and we had to move about four times in the space of five years. And when we finally got a building, it was one that had been built in the early 1900s that didn't have a gymnasium, didn't have a cafeteria. In 2007, Columbia Heights Education Campus got a brand new facility. Tukeva is trying to level the playing field academically as well. Students go on study abroad programs to expose them to a different world, literally. And 11th and 12th graders have to take AP English. There is no regular English. All that began in 2007. That's the year Michelle Ree was brought in to turn around D.C. schools. In her eyes, she was standing up for poor kids who were stuck in an ineffective bureaucratic system. She famously or infamously appeared on the cover of Time magazine, and she starred in a popular documentary about school reform. So you think that most of the kids in D.C. are getting a crappy education right now? Oh, I don't think they are. I know they are. There's a complete and utter lack of accountability for the job that we're supposed to be doing, which is producing results for kids. Re attracted millions of dollars in private funding. At the same time, she fired hundreds of teachers and closed dozens of schools. I spoke with Bill Turk of the Washington Post, who covered her for many years. Her central argument was that the children in the district were being shortchanged. One of her biggest issues was the fact that teachers overwhelmingly got very good evaluations. And at the same time, um, the students in the schools where they worked were all failing miserably. And I think she also felt that looking at the system, and it was hard to argue with her again, that a student in Anacostia was not getting the same education as a student in Tenley Town, and that made it a civil rights issue in her way of thinking. I remember one of my first few meetings with her, she said, children over here do worse than children in Puerto Rico. She had a lot of very graphic ways of explaining things, and that was what became her political problem, was that she, as a change agent, she didn't really think much about who she was offending. What I think set her apart was that she immediately called out 
a very powerful political constituency, which were the uh, organized teachers and the teachers' union. And by making it clear that she thought they had failed at their jobs, she was not only taking on a union, but she was taking on really what was the core of, of the black middle class. Do you think she didn't understand how race and class kind of fit into her picture of education reform? I think she did understand. I just think that it was not important to her and that what was more important to her was to see the performance of the schools rise. I mean, she was aware that the, the optics did not work in her favor, though she was a very a blunt-spoken, very impolitic Korean woman calling out an African-American-dominated political system, and that was just bound to cause sparks. And she did cause sparks. Mayor Adrian Fenty was voted out in 2010, and one major issue was Rhee's education reform. But much of the change she brought is still in effect. Now in D.C., a teacher's evaluation is linked to students' test scores. There are large bonuses and additional pay for top-performing teachers. There's also far more of the belief across the board that all students can, should, and will learn. But one thing that hasn't changed as much is the demographics in schools. One report calls this racial isolation. In almost 95% of DCPS schools in 2010, white students made up less than 5% of the student body. Oh, it's, it's hugely problematic. This is Richard Collenberg. He's with the think tank The Century Foundation, and he's written several books about diversity in schools. He's critical of efforts to improve education in recent years. He says we've been trying to make separate but equal work. We're all about let's try to improve the high-poverty schools where we pack all the poor kids into one educational setting. But there is a half-century of research to suggest that probably one of the best things you can do to improve the education of all children is to give them access to an economically integrated environment. In fact, he says low-income students who get the chance to attend more affluent schools are two years ahead of low-income students who attend high-poverty schools. So it's not that low-income kids can't learn. It's that they will do better if given the right environment. And an environment where your peers are academically engaged, where the parents are in a position to be actively involved in school affairs, and where you have strong teachers is is one where low-income kids will flourish. So, Kavitha, my question, after talking to Kallenberg about why integrated schools are good for everyone, I'm wondering what school officials here have to say about this. Well, I spoke with DCPS Chancellor Kaya Henderson about the race-class divide in D.C. schools, and she started off by talking about her own background as a low-income African-American little girl. I grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. My family lived in the projects for 47 years, and education is actually the thing that changed our family's trajectory. We went from being very, very poor to moving solidly into the middle class as a result of the public education system. Henderson talked about some of the systemic programs in place to try and close the race and income gaps among the city's students. I'm proud to say that we have the highest AP participation rate in the country right now because we believe that AP is not just for kids at Wilson or Walls or Banneker, but that AP is for kids at Anacostia and Ballou 
and Roosevelt, um, all the same. Um, we put programs in place like art and music and PE and foreign language at, and library at the elementary grades because those aren't things that should just happen if your PTA can pay for them. Is it important that all our schools are diverse or is it every child should have the opportunity to go to a great school? Both. Would I love it if every single one of our schools was completely racially and socioeconomically diverse? Yes. But given that many of our, our schooling choices are made based on housing, um, we know that there are still many segregated neighborhoods and there are going to be many segregated schools. Since nobody is going to socio-engineer us into complete and total diversity, I think it, it's important for us to also make sure that all of our schools have the very best to offer both our highest performers and our, our lowest performers. So this brings us back to the question we started with. Will we ever be able to get past these race and class divisions in D.C. schools? And it sounds like Kai is saying no. Right. Well, I put the question to her directly, and this is what she said. In America, we haven't moved past race and class being important in the 200-some years of our republic, right? So I'm not particularly hopeful that in any short time, race and class won't be relevant in D.C. I think how we treat them, what we expect as a result are the things that we have the opportunity to manage. One of the things she said, Jacob, that struck me was that D.C. is no longer just black and white in the classrooms. There are more and more Hispanic students, more and more international students from Somalia, Ethiopia, El Salvador, Vietnam. And schools are changing as well to meet these different needs. Kavitha, we talk a lot about how quickly D.C. is changing. Not just immigrants, but more affluent people are moving to the city and many are sending their kids to public schools. And it'll be interesting to see the role these newcomers play in holding elected officials accountable for how the schools are doing. For her part, Kaya Henderson says while it can be challenging when politicians discuss education, at least that means elected leaders are talking about a topic that's crucial to the city's future. That was Kavitha Cardoza and Jacob Fenston. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson and Martin Ostermule, Emily Berman and Lauren Ober, Jacob Fenston and Kavitha Cardoza, and Tara Boyle. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our Editorial Assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, head to our website, metroconnection.org, and click This Week on Metro Connection, or subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we compile a bevy of stories about collecting. From the woman who gathers details about rundown buildings and the landlords who control them, to a quirky old hotel that's been collecting dust, but will soon get a makeover. Plus a closer look at one of the oldest and rarest map collections on Virginia's eastern shore. Here's the John White, done in 1590. Uh, the price on that is 48000 Then comes next is Captain John Smith map. Price on that is $130,000. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.